pray this mic continues to work. We're having a little fading and out problems. So, well, we are now just about done. We have one more week on our series. Um, what's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? A guide to what matters most. And if you read the book, you discover that title is not making light of Christianity. If anything, Martin Thielen has a passion for people who may be skeptical about the Christian faith. You got a different one here for me. Okay. So if you find this subject helpful, if you have someone that you think uh, is skeptical and you're trying to talk faith with them, uh, not only might encourage them to read this book, but Martin Thielen now has a new book called The Religion is not no religion. A guide to good religion for seekers, skeptics, and believers. Also, I encourage you to check out Martin Thien's website called Doubters Parish, where he will interact with you and uh, dialogue issues if you're one of those thinking Christians trying to navigate faith in the 21st century. I knew it was going to be a difficult day when I got up here and I saw a bird had dude on the pulpit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, I'm not sure we can preach enough or read enough about the subject of human suffering. I was reading an article on Barna Research that declared the Generation Z, which is our youngest adult generation, that the number of atheists are up in that generation. 13% declare themselves as atheists, over against 6% for the rest of the adult population. And of those 13%, the number one reason given for why they don't believe in God was that they have a hard time believing a good God could allow so much suffering in the world. 29% said that's the primary reason. The second highest is uh, the statement that Christians are hypocrites, 23% made that claim. I think we all need to own that. We're, we're all imperfect. We're all hypocrites. But everybody is hypocrites. But that's the second claim. There is no denying that there's a lot of bad things that happen in this world. I mean, how many of you have experienced something in your life that's made you question the existence of God? I certainly include myself among those. I've had too many moments in my life, especially as a pastor, where I've had to grapple with the problem of evil and attempt to proclaim God's presence in the midst of tragedy. I recall early in my ministry having a counsel with a young man who five years before that had driving a company truck going down the highway and a little girl had ridden in front of him on her bicycle and he struck and killed her. It wasn't his fault, but he still couldn't let go of the guilt of that experience. I remember a domestic abuse situation where the couple was in my office for premarital counseling. And in the middle of that counseling, she proclaimed that she wanted to end this attempt to getting married because he was beating her. I even had to call the sheriff to get him to leave. And the tragedy of the situation was that she was so dependent that she called me the next week and wanted to know if I would still marry them. I conducted a funeral of the 19-year-old grandson of my administrative assistant of 16 years. I'd known him since he was five years old. He shot himself when his girlfriend broke up with him. I've officiated the funerals of double homicides, traffic fatalities, and a person who died of AIDS. And now this past year, I've done the funerals of three persons who died of COVID. 
you've heard me share about, my brother-in-law, who at age 20 was riding in a car, going too fast on a slick road, went off the road, struck a tree. He had head trauma for five weeks, was in a coma, and then he ended up dying in the hospital. But you know, the hardest thing I've probably ever done in ministry happened one week after I'd been asked to be the chaplain for the Floyd County Sheriff's Department. And I got a phone call from the sheriff that one of his drug force uh, detectives had a one-year-old child who had aspirated on its own bottle milk, was in the hospital. And the hardest thing I had to do was go and baptize that child before they unplugged all the life support to let that child go to the next life. There's an incredible amount of pain and suffering in this world. But I do think that one of the things that's really helpful, it's good to state this morning, and if you read the 16th chapter in the book by Martin Thielen, I think he does a tremendous job in talking about the issue of suffering. But he makes the truth that God gets a bad rap about a lot of things that are certainly not God's fault. And he points out the number one reason for so much of the suffering in this world is not God, but human sin. And it starts with the story of Adam and Eve. When God gave them a choice, and he gave them the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they did not choose wisely. They chose to take their own way instead of trusting in God. And that choice has been demonstrated over and over. That story is explaining the human condition. A man smokes three packs of cigarettes a day. We pollute our environment in the food that we eat. We eat fast food and empty calories for years. We carry more weight than we know that we should. And then we ask God why he allowed us to get heart disease and cancer. When my brother-in-law was involved in that fatal accident, I was in seminary at the time, dealing with all those big questions of God. And in the hospital and then later in the funeral home, I heard so many pious Christians make statements trying to bring comfort. They were well-intentioned. But to say things like God has a plan or it was Andy's time or God needed him in heaven or his dad who just died five weeks before needed him in heaven, those things aren't helpful. And I kept my mouth shut. But as a seminary student, I just wanted to shout out and say, this isn't God's fault. God didn't plan this. This isn't what God wants. He died because he got in a car that had an engine far too big for that chassis, going 30 miles and over, over the speed limit on a slick road that had just been made that slick by a light rain, and they went off the road. That's what killed Andy, not God. And Martin Thielen goes on to describe, well, all the natural situations in our world. How things like earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes often end up resulting in human loss and suffering. But you've got to stop and ask the question, what if somehow we could magically make those natural forces not occur? What would that do to the balance of nature? I mean, we know for sure that the earthquakes are caused by the shifting of the Earth's crust. That below that's a layer of molten lava. And without that shifting, the releasing of that pressure, the earth would literally blow up. Think about all the times that so much of the suffering in our world has been attributed to God simply because we didn't understand it. Think about how much times in ancient history in which people thought an epidemic was God's judgment on a sinful population or because the presence of witches or looking for some evil 
when the when the real reason is that we just need to wash our hands better, have clean water sources, and do a better job of taking care of human waste. Yes, I think Martin Thielen's right that God takes the blame for a lot of things that are simply the result of natural forces absolutely necessary to our environment. God takes the blame of poor human choices. And God even gets blamed for things that are the failure of human beings who don't act upon the information that we have. Much of the suffering in our world could be relieved if we only had the will to make the sacrifices necessary to make it happen. Scientists are unanimous that we have enough food in this world to feed every single person on this planet. And yet, 9 million people die of hunger each year. 3.1 million of those are children, simply because we don't have the motivation to solve the problem of distribution. I also think it's important to understand where does this simplistic thinking come from? Where's this idea that we think God controls absolutely everything in our world and in our lives. And that strand of theology actually can be found in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, and it's got a name for it. Scholars like to call it the Deuteronomic tradition. And here's a good example of it from Deuteronomy 7, verses 12 through 14. If you listen to these case laws and follow them carefully, the Lord your God will keep the covenant and display the loyalty that he promised your ancestors. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He'll bless the fruit of your wombs and the fruit of your fertile land. You'll be more blessed than any other group of people. So the concept is simple. Obey God, and good things will happen. Disobey God, and bad things will happen. Now, I don't want you to think I'm disagreeing with this scripture, because I think it's true on so many levels. If we make God our priority, life tends to go better because God's laws are intended for our benefit. There's a lot of wisdom in doing things God's way. We make it easier for God to work in our lives, but there's no promise anywhere in the scriptures that we will be exempt from human suffering. And it's so important to take the witness of scripture as a whole. You'll also find the Old Testament, the book of Job. How many have waded through that book? Not the easiest thing to read, is it? I encourage you to read the, especially the prologue, the beginning. You might skip the middle section where there's a lot of whining in poetic form. But get to chapters 38 to 42, and you'll find some of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And there you'll find Job's witness. And you won't find an explanation for the problem of evil, but clearly this book was written to balance out that Deuteronomic theology. It was written to help people understand that life isn't always as simple as follow God and everything goes well. Here's Job's answer after God has spoken to him. Job says, I know you can do anything, God. No plan of yours can be opposed successfully. You said, who is this darkening counsel without knowledge? I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand. Wonders beyond my comprehension. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will inform me. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I relent and find comfort on dust and ashes. So did you hear what happened to Job? When he heard God, now in the midst of his suffering, before that time, God was some distant reality. 
But now he saw God. He was intimate with God. You know, I've heard that testimony from people over and over. That so many were just cruising through life, trying to pay homage to God from time to time. But then something big happened in their lives. Often it involves suffering. And then God became so real to them because they felt God's presence holding them together in the midst of that suffering. And Jesus continued that tradition of Job. Remember when he healed the blind man? Before that, his disciples asked him, who had sinned in this man's life, this man or someone in his family? And Jesus' answer was neither. This is an opportunity for God to be honored. Later, when calling people to love their enemies, Jesus says, God makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. So when you read the whole witness of Scripture, there is no clear explanation of the problem of suffering. But there is one truth we can take great comfort in. We know that we're not alone. We have a God who not only came down to our world in the person of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, Jesus confronted and experienced human evil in the most personal way. Our Lord, the one we model our lives after, the one we find inspiration, the one who showed us what God looks like, died a slow death on the cross after one of the most painful and humiliating beatings a person could experience. So I hope that you consider this cross not just a symbol for the way God brings about our salvation, but so much more. The cross is the center of our faith. As Martin Thielen states, the cross of Jesus Christ tells us that God is present in the midst of suffering. God has entered human suffering. God works to relieve human suffering. And ultimately, God redeems human suffering. One of the most important books I read when I was in college was a book called Night, written by Ali Wiesel. It helped me overcome some of my simplistic thinking as I went to college. Elie Wiesel was a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust, and during his teenage years, he and his family were in prison at the infamous concentration camp known as Auschwitz. Other than himself, everyone in Elie Wiesel's family perished in that horrible camp. And Wiesel tells a powerful story from his experience at Auschwitz. That story involves the hanging of three prisoners, two adults and a teenage boy. They were accused of blowing up a power station. And so, in order to teach a lesson to all the other prisoners, they made everyone in that concentration camp march in front of those gallows with those three people hanging. By the time Elie Wiesel walked in front, the two adults were already dead, but the little teenage boy was still in that stage between life and death. And as they walked by, Wiesel heard a man behind him say, Where is God now? Where is he? And that's the question, isn't it? Where is God? Where is God in my illness? Where is God when I face the reality of death? Where is God as I face a deteriorating marriage? When I face financial problems or doubt or depression? Where is God in the midst of war, terrorism, earthquakes, fear, and hatred? And as the execution continued, that lad lingered on, once again, 
Ali heard that man mumble again, where is God? And Weisel said within himself, he heard a voice say an answer within him, where is God? He is there hanging on the gallows. And isn't that what the cross tells us? That God is a God of the gallows, a crucified God. A God may not take away our suffering, but a God who enters our pain and shares it with us. The cross tells us that when we suffer, God suffers right there with us. Our God is a crucified God. Now, if you read that 16th chapter, you'll see that Martin Thielen closes with a powerful story about a man named David. He had lost his 14-year-old son, died tragically. And the loss was so great to him that after the funeral was done, a few days later, he drove to a Roman Catholic bookstore. And he bought one of those crosses, a crucifix, where Jesus is still hanging on it. And he brought it home. He went to his toolbox. He got a hammer and nail, and he hung it on the wall right behind where his son's chair was at dinner time. And that crucifix still was in its place 12 years later when he told this story to Martin Thielen. Every time he'd come and sit down at the meal and see that empty chair, he'd look up and see the crucifix and be reminded that our Lord suffers with us. It didn't take the pain away. It didn't explain his son's death. But knowing that God suffered with him allowed David to survive that horrible time. And 12 years later, with that cross still there, it continues to remind him that God is always with him, even in his deepest sorrow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being with us in those times of our suffering. And most of us, if we've allowed you to walk with us, have discovered it's been a time of growth and learning and healing to the point that we now become someone who can be helpful to someone else. You have the power to redeem our suffering and make it useful. If there's anyone here today who's in the midst of that suffering and experiencing a loss, may they feel your comforting presence now. You don't take the pain away, but you share it with us. You walk side by side. For all this, we're so very thankful. In Christ's name, amen.